Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, a political shocker as the Democrats lose one of their own in the Senate. My stand today is about joining the many Americans and lots of Arizonans, in fact, the majority of registered voters, who don't believe that any political party fits them perfectly. Brittany Griner returns home, but was the cost too high? The notorious Russian arms dealer who the U.S. swapped in exchange for Griner's freedom, sentenced to 25 years for aiding a terrorist organization and conspiring to kill Americans. Plus, the former president says the Constitution should be suspended because he lost the 2020 election and Georgia turning a bit blue. All of that coming up this hour. But first, joining me now is Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio reporter who has been following the trial of Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer. If you're not familiar with this case, it dates back to January of last year, and in the early morning hours, off-duty Sheriff Ed Troyer stopped Cedric Altimer, a newspaper carrier who was delivering papers. Well, I guess let's start from there. What exactly happened, and why is Ed Troyer on trial now? Well, as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, the charges he faces are for falsely reporting uh, of a crime, of a threat against a public official, and for making false statements to a public servant, in this case, Tacoma police officers who answered the call. Troyer was at home uh, in the early morning hours of January 27th last year, and he had seen a car going through his neighborhood, driving from house to house, he says, sometimes with the headlights off, and he wasn't certain what this car was up to. So he got into his own personal vehicle and began to follow, followed this newspaper carrier, Cedric Altimer, for quite some time until eventually Troyer says they sort of were face to face in the middle of a short cul-de-sac, their cars facing each other. And he says that's when Altimer got out of the car, was very angry, swinging his arms wildly and, and tried to confront him. Troyer stayed in his vehicle and had made a phone call at this point to an inside line. He didn't call 911, but he called South Sound dispatchers and asked for, he says, for Tacoma police to send one or two cars to his neighborhood because he says he had been threatened by this newspaper carrier. Uh, But in the meantime now, he's sitting there waiting for this situation to unfold, waiting for officers to arrive. And he claims that Altimer uh, was pretty angry the entire time and had even uh, accused Troyer of saying that uh, he was being followed because he was black in an all-white neighborhood. And, you know, race has been an issue from the very beginning when this story came out. The headlines read, you know, Troyer follows black newspaper carrier. Altimer was even asked about that in court by Troyer's attorney, Ann Bremner. Did he mention your race ever? No. Did he ever make any racially disparaging comments to you? So how did Troyer respond after that testimony? Well, Troyer says he even tried to point out that he has uh, not only black people, but uh, people of a whole slew of other races in his own family. Says he even told Cedric Altheimer, my black grandson wouldn't be too happy about that comment. He also said because Altheimer came at him in such an angry fashion. Wasn't going to engage with them. He, He got out of his car door and he stayed up there at his car screaming yelling i've had already called 911 and told them what it you know what had happened 
Troyer's attorney, Ann Bremner, tried to downplay this whole situation and, in fact, tried to get Cedric Alzheimer on the stand to admit that this was really what she kept calling a non-event. That's based on your testimony. Your testimony. That nothing really happened, correct? I'm saying no. Something did happen. I almost lost my life for a lie. We've already established that you didn't have guns pointed at you, right? <laughs> if you say so. The police say so. Objection, argumentative. It's Sustained. Bremner was also attempting to discredit Alzheimer as a witness, his testimony in this case, by bringing up the fact that Alzheimer not only had a, a GoFundMe page that he says that somebody he didn't even know set up for him and that uh, other people in the neighborhood say they found flyers for stuffed in their newspapers that Alzheimer would have delivered, but that Alzheimer also filed a $5 million civil claim against the county and Ed Troyer, the first step toward a lawsuit. I want fair justice. I feel like he should be held accountable for wasting the resources and lying. So then Bremner, trying to get to the bottom of things for her client, Ed Troyer, asked Cedric Alzheimer a series of questions. And you're telling us, Jerry, that you never threatened the sheriff. You never said, I'll take you out. I'll take you down. Anything like that. No. You never said anything that could be termed threatening to the sheriff. Is that right? No. So what else did we hear from Troyer? Well, Troyer didn't take the stand until late Thursday, but that morning actually began with his wife, Wendy, who was on the stand for quite some time. And both of them were asked about a subsequent incident that happened about an hour after this initial confrontation last January 27th, in which the Troyers claimed that Alzheimer then came to their house revved his car engine, and was yelling outside their window. So once Ann Bremner got Troyer on the stand, what did she ask in direct examination about that night? Well, she got right to the chase and asked Ed Troyer a series of questions regarding whether or not he did actually deny having said that Alzheimer threatened him. Did you ever deny at that scene that there had been a threat? No. And did you ever make any kind of false or misleading statement to any public official at that scene? No. Would you ever do that? Never. Have you ever done that? 38 years, and I don't have a single complaint of lying, racism, assault, <laughs> use of force, sex, old discrimination, or otherwise not even a report filed. Even after all of that, Ann Bremner continued with that line of questioning. Did you ever deny being threatened? No. You're absolutely sure about that? Yeah, I never denied it. And when he did he ever ask you, were you threatened? Did you ever say no? No, I never said, no, I was. It didn't happen because we never got into that much detail of what was going on. I just said I wasn't worried about it. And when Troyer says he wasn't worried about it, what he meant was he made it clear to the Tacoma police on the scene that he wasn't actually worried about his safety for the threat. At least that's what he told the jury. Now, he was also asked about why he would have said in the call to dispatchers, the emergency call, the call for help, why he would have said all of that stuff uh, to the dispatchers and including that his life had been threatened. And of course, all of this is happening with the backdrop of the anti-police protests that happened just a, a few months before this. It certainly seems that Cedric Altimer, whether in the right or in the wrong, 
benefited from this encounter with that GoFundMe account. We know he used that money to buy a new car. Uh, so uh, race is a big issue here, uh, and, and it, it's a lot of he said, she said. So where do we go from here? Well, Troyer's testimony has not finished. In fact, his attorney hasn't even wrapped up her direct examination. So when the trial resumes on Monday morning, Troyer is expected to take the stand again, not only to finish that testimony, but then the prosecutors from the state attorney general's office who are handling this case then get to cross-examine him. And it'll be definitely interesting watching to see uh, how they approach their line of questioning. So if convicted, will Troyer end up going to jail or is this merely a civil case? Well, it's not a civil case. They are criminal charges. But they're misdemeanors, so if he even was to spend any time in jail, it would be minimal. I suspect that a judge, if there's any kind of a sentence there, it would be a fine and possibly some community service. I doubt they'll put the sheriff behind bars in his own county jail. All right, Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. We'll search out with you in the coming weeks about the latest in this twisting, turning saga that is the Ed Troyer trial. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. All right, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Brittany Griner back on U.S. soil, but Republicans say the cost to bring her home was far too high when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the U.S. swapped WNBA star Brittany Griner for a convicted Russian arms dealer by the name of Victor Boot. This has been a months-long saga. Joining me now is ABC's M. Wynn from Washington, D.C. And uh, what finally made the change? Because I know there's been a lot of negotiations between the White House and the Kremlin over the last six months or so. Right. So certainly this conversation has been going on for a while. If you rewind back to February, that's when Griner was was caught with hashish oil. It was found in a bait cartridge. Of course, it's illegal in Russia. It was found in her luggage. That's what Russian authorities are saying. Uh, And then she was sentenced to nine years in prison. Um, And she spent about nine months in prison before this deal actually came to fruition. And then after February in July is when the Biden administration decided to put up a very significant offer to Russia, which is in exchange for Griner, as well as the former Marine, uh, Paul Whelan, who, um, of course, is accused of spying. It's an espionage case in exchange for both of them that the U.S. would go ahead and exchange with Victor Boot, a convicted Russian arms dealer. He's someone that Russia has been pushing for the release of for years, ever since he was captured in 2008. They have been wanting him to come back. Um, it's not clear exactly what he's going to do next. It's clear he does have significant ties to Russian government circles, though. So at that point, the conversation was getting uh, more intense um, as to what could happen. But it became pretty clear to the United States that Russia was not going to allow two people. It was only going to be a one to one swap and that the espionage case with Whelan is something they treat very differently. So the White House made it very clear that it was either Reiner comes home or no one comes home. And so it appears from our sources that President Biden uh, signed off on this swap last week and finalized everything maybe in the last 48 hours. What do we know about Victor Boot? He is is this Russian arms dealer. Uh, What was he arrested for? How did he end up in a U.S. prison? And why did Russia want him back so badly? Right. So Victor Boot, he conspired to sell tens of millions of dollars in weapons that U.S. officials say were to be used against Americans. He's also accused of 
fueling some of the worst conflicts, particularly in Africa. He's accused of supplying anti-aircraft missiles. He's accused of aiding terrorist organizations. And then there was this decades-long hunt by the U.S. to stop him, and he was finally captured uh, in 2008 and brought here to the United States to be put in jail. Now, after 14 years in jail, this is a big part of the reason why pundits believe uh, the administration would actually allow a swap to this magnitude, uh, this type of person for a WNBA star, is that after more than a decade in jail, pundits believe maybe he's no longer a threat. The sentiment is that his value as a potential intelligence asset is over, and therefore uh, it seems like a pretty fair trade to the United States. Of course, there are other risks as to what Boot could be doing next now that he's out. And this question was actually asked to the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. Was there a risk assessment of how dangerous Boot may be now that he's going to be returned to Russia? And uh, Jean-Pierre basically just said that the U.S. had thought about this, had discussions, that the U.S. will stay vigilant on national security, and that the president didn't take this decision lightly. And Brittany Griner is, you know, in WNBA star that we've we've talked about she really had no ties to the the local government this was seemed like kind of an imbalanced trade as it, as it were i mean certainly republicans have lashed out on president biden and the administration as to whether or not this was a fair trade uh one senator tom cotton a republican of arkansas said in a release that miss Greiner quote shouldn't have come at the cost of releasing one of the world's worst arm dealers others lashing out at president biden for not including whelan in this swap, although, again, I'll make it very clear that the White House has said it was either Reiner comes back home or no one. And so certainly this is the fallout of this exchange. But there's an overwhelming number of people who are commending this trade. Uh, certainly uh, the teammates of this eight-time All-Star, uh, certainly other athletes, the Phoenix Mercury, the WNBA um, that she was playing for, saying that this is joyous time. Speaker Pelosi commending the president and uh uh, for Griner's return home. Um, but of course, on the other side, there's a big question. Does this set a dangerous precedent? Um, there was a representative of Texas, Michael McCall, who was saying that this may only encourage more countries to take Americans hostage in the future, which is something uh, very scary to say. But it's something that I'm sure the White House have thought about. Uh, President Biden today in his remarks now urging Americans with the very stark warning that if you're traveling outside of the country, particularly those of adversary countries like Russia or North Korea, to check with the U.S. government travel advisories and to make sure you never get caught in a situation like this. And, and what about Paul Whelan? What do we know about him and, and how the U.S. might get him home? So this is a very difficult case for the United States because Paul Whelan was accused of spying. He was sentenced in 2020 to 16 years in prison, and he's been jailed for about four years already. So this is someone that uh, different administrations have been trying to to get him released and back to the United States because U.S. officials denounce this type of arrest as wrongfully detained. So they believe that Whelan should be here in the United States. But this trial that happened during that time for this espionage trial was almost entirely held behind doors. And so uh, and this is something that the U.S. ambassador had said uh, that that. This, the evidence in this case was, quote unquote, secret evidence. So there's not a lot that we know about the case itself, only that he is accused of spying and that Russia treats this type of case very differently. Um, but we do know that we that the administration has tried to, to get Whelan here to the United States, that that was denied, um, that ultimately they secured the release of Griner. 
Um, we know that the White House said they contacted Whelan's family to discuss their decision in releasing and getting uh, and securing the release of, of Griner, giving that family a moment to wrap their heads around this release, that they will not be getting Whelan in this announcement. Um, and that the the and that Whelan's twin brother saying that he's starting to lose hope whether or not his brother is going to be home. So it's going to be difficult to see how this moves forward. We know it's going to be a, a big difficult negotiation between the U.S. and Russia if Whelan were to come back. All right, ABC's Am Lynn from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks so much. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, former President Trump, still denying his loss in the 2020 election, now says the Constitution should be suspended when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, Donald Trump is at it again on Truth Social this past week. He suggested, of all things, suspending the Constitution. Then a day later, he said, no, that's not what I was saying, despite what it says in black and white. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field, and uh, this seems to be another stumbling block for Republicans who are trying to move themselves away from the former president. But uh, let's start with what he said. What did Mr. Trump say on Truth Social? he, he, He said something worse than suspending the Constitution. He wants to terminate it. Uh, he's basically he was upset about the fact that uh, Elon Musk leaked a bunch of internal documents from Twitter before he got there saying that the Biden campaign had asked them not to post nude pictures of Hunter Biden that had been on the laptop saying that uh, a lot of this was has nothing to do with Biden and, and you know he shouldn't do it and and Twitter said okay we're not going to do it because they thought it was hacked material and we still don't know that it isn't hacked material but the the bottom line is they didn't post these things. And Donald Trump sees this as the reason he lost the election he claims he didn't lose. And he said uh, massive fraud, uh, collusion with big tech, the government colluded with big tech. Well, I, I, sorry to say this, but actually Donald Trump was the government in 2020, not Joe Biden. He was a private citizen. So there was no government collusion there. And he says, basically, he goes, this kind of massive fraud, and here's the quote, allows for the, quote, termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. The same Constitution that Donald Trump raised his right hand and swore an oath to preserve and protect. That got a whole lot of outrage, mostly from Democrats, not too many Republicans, although a few of them were out there, including some people who used to work for him. So Donald Trump was back on Truth Social uh, the next day saying, Here's his quote. The fake news is trying to convince the American people that I said I wanted to terminate the Constitution. This is simply more disinformation and lies. And he goes on to explain himself. He did say he would think that terminating all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution, is an appropriate thing to do because he thinks the election was stolen. All of this is the continuing sideshow that has become Donald Trump. And more and more Republicans just keep backing away hoping that the bear in the corner doesn't attack them. And there was very little response immediately from uh, leaders in the House and Senate other than, hey, uh, we're going to move on. Here's the great irony in all this. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the next Speaker of the House, has promised that when Republicans take control of the House, the very first thing they're going to do is read every word of the Constitution on the House floor, including, I which suppose the parts that Donald Trump doesn't like. So what exactly is Donald Trump calling for? Is he wanting to impose martial law? It's unclear. He he didn't make that very clear what he wants to do. 
Uh, I'm sure it has something to do with the electoral vote count that his vice president refused to override. But, you know, at this point, well, we're almost two years out from the last election. There's no way that that Joe Biden is going to be kicked out of office because Donald Trump thinks he should be. We recall that more than 60 courts, many of them with judges appointed by Donald J. Trump, threw out these cases saying there's no evidence. Your lawyers have come here with just nonsense. And it all got thrown out before January 6th when there was this horrendous attack on the Capitol that the January 6th committee, and certainly even the Justice Department at this point, seemed to think was inspired, if not incited, by Donald Trump, the president of the United States. He's facing some serious criminal investigations regarding that, and possibly criminal referrals uh, in addition to what's going on at the Justice Department. So you say there's been kind of a pin drop from Republicans, but I mean, that's, you know, politics as usual. The Democrats would do the same if, if some something bad came up of a, uh, about Joe Biden. But in this case, the Republican Party, uh, you know, looking at the last election, the midterms, and, and looking at the what they're trying to do over the next two years, they're really trying to move on from the former president. They're trying to distance themselves, aren't they? Uh, they've been trying to do that for a while, and he's given them a good reason to do that uh, with the results of the last midterm elections that did not turn out as great for Donald Trump uh, endorsed candidates. But I, I do uh, take exception to one of the things you said, that uh, Democrats would probably do the same thing for Joe Biden. Uh, there were many Democrats that did not do the same thing for Bill Clinton when he got himself into a whole lot of hot water with uh, with Monica Lewinsky. They didn't think he had he should have been impeached, but they certainly exoriated him for for that. And uh, there have been countless examples of Democrats uh, basically putting the hammer down on uh, fellow Democrats when they get into scandals. So, what are we expecting to happen next? Is President Trump expected to? do anything, post anything new? Obviously, no one can really say for a, a fact, but uh, what are we expecting to happen in, in the next step of this saga? Uh, who knows? You know, he's he's the soap opera that, that keeps on giving, that every day is a, a, some new strange statement from the former president. But as you said, most Republicans are just kind of trying to ignore him and, and move on to what they want to do next. And a lot of that is finding a new candidate for 2024. President Trump or former President Trump said he's going to run again. But the polls don't show that he has a whole lot of support among the GOP faithful, right? Well, this is interesting. I, I'm, I'm not familiar with this, but it's the Deseret News uh, Hinckley Institute of Politics. It's a poll out of Utah voters. Now, this is only Utah voters, so it doesn't necessarily represent all Republicans. But uh, they said, who are the top three candidates uh, if they were going to hold the primaries today? Uh, unsurprisingly, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is number one. But Donald Trump was not number two. He was number three behind, wait for it, uh, this is going to be a shocker, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the woman who literally has been excommunicated from the Republican Party on Capitol Hill and lost spectacularly in her own re-election race in Wyoming. Uh, she's the person who's been the co-chair of the January 6th committee. Uh, and I'm wondering how many Democrats took this poll that, that may have influenced this year. So it'll be interesting to see. 
All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, the final election of 2022 is in the books. We'll get some post-game from Atlanta when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, Georgia's Senate runoff election between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker came to a close this past week with Warnock the projected winner. This after more than a year of campaigning, a number of controversies, and at least three elections. Joining me now is Laylee Ipsa. She's an ABC News campaign reporter in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I guess first off, uh, all the votes still have yet to be counted. This hasn't been certified, but the the final numbers uh, are going to show the Democrats are hanging on to this seat. Absolutely. It's a big win for Democrats. You know, they really are celebrating this moment that Senator Warnock was able to win re-election. They now have a 51-seat majority, which means that their pathway to passing legislation becomes a lot more easier. And also they have more power on committees. So Democrats are really celebrating uh, this week's election and Republicans are swarming over what if questions. We had all sorts of scandals that we kind of alluded to as we started this segment, uh, particularly when it came to Herschel Walker and, you know, whether or not he paid for abortion, some of the things that he had said at the debates. Here in Atlanta, Georgia, how did people on the ground there react? Right. So I think that you kind of saw a divide within the Republican Party. You had Walker's base that throughout all the allegations supported him said that they were going to vote for him. Um, and that was really the base that turned out to vote for him in the runoff. The independents and moderates, those coveted split ticket voters, those are the voters that really started to have some hesitancy for voting for Walker because of the allegations on top of the fact that throughout the campaign cycle, Walker really did talk very little policy. In this runoff cycle, it was really important for Walker to reach over uh, to talk to those independents and moderates to talk more policy, and it's just not something that we saw him do. Herschel Walker was former President Trump's endorsed candidate, and his preferred candidates didn't do that well in this last election cycle. And how much of that played into the factor down there in Georgia? It was a huge part. I mean, that's the reason why you didn't see former President Trump come down to Georgia to campaign for Walker because of what he was dealing with, with his all the investigations that he's under um, in the last sort of runoff cycle. We saw him you know, really come under fire for uh, having dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, who is a known uh, white nationalist. Uh, But, you know, Walker really uh, didn't embrace Trump on the campaign cycle in terms of talking about him really openly. He would talk about the Make America Great Against slogan, but we very rarely saw Walker uh, mention Trump by name. But that connotation is just, you couldn't deny it and it couldn't be missed. And for a large part of Georgians, they really wanted to shift away from Trump. We saw Georgians reject Trump in 2020. We also saw them reject Trump here in this runoff cycle. And Raphael Warnock certainly tried to paint Herschel Walker as uh, horrendously unqualified. Exactly. That was the center of Senator Warnock's campaign. He framed this election as a race on competence and character. It is something that he said throughout the campaign cycle multiple times, probably about every single campaign cycle, because what he was trying to say is that he was going to be the senator that would fight for all Georgians, that would be able to go to the Senate, uh, enact powerful legislation, work across the aisle in a bipartisanship matter, and kind of framed uh, Herschel Walker as just a Republican rubber stamp who would just vote down party lines and wouldn't really make that much of an impact, pointing to the fact that Walker talked very little policy on the campaign trail. 
For the longest time, Georgia has been a, a deep red state, but it's turning more shades of purple even towards blue as of late. Absolutely. I mean, you saw Republicans up and down the ballot statewide win, except for Herschel Walker in that in that national race. Uh, what that shows me is that Georgia is a deeply divided state. It is is trending purple, trending blue, uh, but both sides are cautiously optimistic. You know, they're not cementing it as a blue state or as a red state just yet. They just know that what this means is that, as cliche as it might sound, turnout is really the name of the game. It was the home to former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. Saxby Chambliss was in the Senate there for many, many years. And now you've got two Democratic senators coming out of that state. Exactly. You really can pinpoint that on the groundwork game that Democrats have done at the helm of Stacey Abrams, even though she lost her gubernatorial race. Uh, she really put in a powerful force for Georgia Democrats, and it was canvassing. It was pumping in money to the state, uh, fundraising, because they really saw a key powerful way for them to make the state trend from deep red to this purple that we're seeing as connecting to voters, reaching across to the um, voters that don't vote in every election. And those are where we really saw the vote margin shift in favor of Senator Warnock. Even though the control of the Senate wasn't up during this runoff election, I would imagine we saw a lot of outside money coming in, a lot of money from those national political action committees, and the airwaves in Atlanta had to have been bombarded. You could not watch any sort of TV drive anywhere, go to any sort of store without seeing a political ad, a political billboard. Yes, this cycle has been flooded with campaign ads and with politics. The Georgia Senate race was the most expensive contest of the 2022 campaign cycle. Millions of dollars came pumping into this state. Uh, We really saw Senator Warnock, the fundraising machine, though. He was able to Uh, flood money into the state. And what that meant for him is that he was able to invest more money into campaign resources, into grassroots efforts, canvassing, opening up field offices uh, towards the runoff, uh, the end of the runoff cycle. They devoted $1 million to putting up billboards, to putting up ads on the airwaves. And also towards the end, uh, they started to play light shows that would light up vote war not, right? So money really has power here in Georgia. And I'm sure a lot of the uh, Georgia voters are going to be happy to see those ads gone over the next uh, couple of days now that the election is closed. But the big question now with Democrats having that 51-seat majority in the Senate, what do they do with it? Exactly. They had a lot of campaign promises that they made in 2020 that they weren't able to fulfill because of the legislative hurdles, uh, especially when you have two senators like uh, Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema, who we saw kind of uh, go towards Republicans in a lot of those key legislative battles. For Democrats, though, uh, especially for Senator Warnock, it's a focus on voting rights. It's a focus on reproductive rights. um, And they feel like they will be able to pass those critical legislations because they have a 51-seat majority and the pathway to legislation and passing legislation is going to be easier for them, and they won't have to rely on Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote so much. Lily Ipso with ABC News in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. We have to take another break, but when we come back, a party switch in D.C., what Senator Kirsten Sinema's decision means for Democrats and for Republicans when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. 
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, this past week, Friday, in fact, a bombshell. Senator Kirsten Sinema, Democrat from Arizona, announced she is switching parties. Well, not so much switching parties as leaving the Democratic Party to become an independent. How is this going to change the makeup of the Senate when they reconvene on January 3rd? Joining me now, Elizabeth Schulze from ABC News in Washington, D.C. And, well, I, I guess the first question is, why in the world did Kirsten Sinema, who's been a thorn in the side of President Biden and Democratic leadership, decide now to leave the Democratic Party? Well, Jeff, the timing is definitely suspicious here, you could say. It comes just a couple days after Democrats won that seat in Georgia. Senator Raphael Warnock won his election there. And they've been touting this 51-seat advantage, and, and that sure doesn't seem like it lasted long, a little bit of a end to that victory lap here. Sinema basically came out and said that this decision to leave the Democratic Party to become an independent is a rejection of Washington's broken partisan system. She says she doesn't really fit into either of these boxes, Democrat or Republican, and she wants to show up every day at work as an independent and vote the way that she thinks the voters who are independents would like her to do. Now, when it comes to what this is actually going to look like in the Senate, that's really the big question mark here. There's precedent for others, independents to come out. And, you know, the reality is that they often end up voting with one party or the other. And the question is kind of, is cinema going to go that route or is she really going to try to take this stance where she's walking both lines? Well, you mentioned that, President. You've already got two independents within the Democratic caucus, that being Bernie Sanders and Angus King, both from New England. But now you've got from the Southwest in Arizona another independent. Is she expected to remain caucusing with the Democrats or is she just going to be out there on her own? She won't say specifically. And a lot of the interviews in the wake of this announcement said, are you still going to caucus with the Democratic Party? And she wouldn't explicitly say yes. On the other hand, she said she won't caucus with Republicans and that the day-to-day of her job will look very similar. We do know that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that Cinema will be able to keep her committee assignments. She sits on a number of committees in the Senate. And that's really important because that's when it comes down to confirming judicial nominees, other executive appointments. So she's still going to have those roles on the committees. Uh, Schumer confirmed that he talked to her about that. But when it comes to her actual kind of voting record, unclear where she'll come down. The one thing I'll note is that as much as Kirsten Cinema describes herself as an independent who swings both ways, her voting record shows that she does vote with President Biden more than 90 percent of the time in the Senate. But it's those major votes where she is sided with not so much with Republicans, but against Democrats, particularly with things like ending the filibuster and some of those big moves that the Democrats tried to make in the early part of the administration. Exactly. And you are immediately seeing swift backlash here on Capitol Hill when it comes to progressives who say, Kirsten Cinema has been a thorn in our side. She won't take the move to get rid of the filibuster, to pass key issues like voting rights, that she's been this kind of the reason to stop any progress for the Democratic Party. But of course, you know, it hasn't just been her. There was the other independent we talked a lot about over the past couple of years, Senator Joe Manchin, who's not an independent, he's a Democrat. Questions now are whether he might follow suit, also declare himself as an independent. And then the underlying questions here really come down to how much is this about this move to kind of represent both parties in the Senate? And how much is this about for Kirsten Cinema, the fact that she's up for 
re-election in 2024 and that she was already facing challenges from Democrats in the state, does this a way for her to avoid what would be probably a messy primary just by declaring herself as an independent and possibly avoiding that process uh, for her re-election? So how are Arizona Democrats responding to this? One thing that we know is that the Democratic Party has been openly critical of Kirsten Cinema. They censured her at one point for not going along with Democrats on, on major issues like voting rights, for example. And so she she was aware of that reality. Now, Cinema hasn't specifically said she's running again. Obviously, as part of this kind of announcement, she she did not tie that in any way to her reelection. But of course, that's the undertone. And this definitely speeds up this process of getting the 2024 Senate race in Arizona underway. And it's a notable contrast with Senator Mark Kelly, who just won his reelection as a Democrat, who who is more of a moderate, but certainly hasn't taken this kind of extreme view of, of trying to say, I'm going to go in the independent side. He's distanced himself in some ways from President Biden. But on the other hand, he clearly ran as a Democrat and, and, and he won, too. And this is a big change for Kirsten Sinema, because when she was first elected and sworn into office, progressives were really quite excited. She was the first bisexual woman elected to Congress. I remember when she took her oath of office, she swore on a stack of law books instead of the Bible. Progressives loved her, but not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. And a lot of that has come down to these fights that she's put up over key pieces of legislation that progressives have tried to get through. Some of those expansions of child care, you know, she notably uh, didn't want to pass the president's Build Back Better agenda that she said that the price tag was too high. She carved out exceptions for some big companies. And ultimately, she has not become this kind of progressive voice that some had hoped she would be. She would say she never intended to do that. Perhaps this was, you know, not her her main agenda. And and the White House, interestingly, in in kind of hearing this announcement, didn't bash Kirsten Cinema. They they did note that she helped on some key pieces of legislation. She was critical to the infrastructure law, to gun control, uh, to the recently passed Respect for Marriage Act. But when it comes to some of those progressive priorities, climate change, uh, social issues, Kirsten Cinema certainly has not been the, the advocate, the champion that, that some had thought or hoped that she might be. All right, ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.